God said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month, first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in the front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark attached to the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Thanks, Tamara. I've just got a few uh, pictures. Simon, are you able to just... There's a couple of pickies up there. I just... Um, uh, of the tabernacle. Uh, so someone... Here you go. So someone, had, someone constructed a tabernacle somewhere. I came across these pictures. Uh, and someone has constructed a tabernacle. So there you go. There's, there's, a, there's a replica tent with the courtyard around and then the bronze basin and the, uh, the bronze altar. And then the next one, Simon... And there you go, there's a kind of a bit of a picky from above. Gives you a bit of a sense of what it might have looked like. Uh, a bit more, uh, kind of a bit more of a sense maybe than the, um, you know, the illustrations that you normally get. Uh, anyway, let me pray and then, uh, and then we'll dig into God's word. Let's, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known in Jesus Christ and uh, Lord, also in your words through Moses uh, in the book of Exodus. And Lord, we ask that you would make yourself known to us now, that you're, you would show us your glory. Lord, we need you more than anything in the whole world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would meet with us uh, through your word and in your spirit, uh, that we might know you, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whom you have sent. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I've, uh, I've never done it, uh, but I can imagine that one of the most exciting things that you could ever do in life is to move into a brand new home. Uh, you know, when you spend years planning, you buy the block of land and then you spend years planning what the house is going to be like and you spend years dreaming and working and building, impatiently ringing the architect, uh, impatiently ringing the builder and asking when it's going to be finished. Uh, uh, Ringing whoever else will take uh, your phone calls. Uh, you want to know when it is that you can move in. Uh, there's problems to sort out. There's fittings to choose. There's paint colours to select. And finally the day comes when it's finished and you get to move in. Not into an old house, but a brand new house. A brand new house purpose-built for you and your family. It's the climax of this long process and it's this kind of long-awaited goal that finally arrives. And in a way, that's what this last chapter of Exodus that Tamara read for us is all about. Uh, we've been on a pretty long journey uh, through the book of Exodus. We started a, uh, a couple of years ago and we've had some breaks. Uh, that journey's not quite as long as the journey of the people of Israel through the book of Exodus. For them, it was about 80 years from, uh, from, Is uh, from Egypt uh, to this time now when God comes 
and moves into his tent. We've seen the people enslaved in Egypt. We've seen them uh, rescued miraculously by God. We've seen them brought into a new relationship with God. We've seen them abandon God and be restored in God's grace. And we've seen them build this big tent. We saw the, the pictures of that just now. And finally, in this chapter, the building work has finished and the day comes when God moves in. And in doing that, in this great depiction of God's glory to come and live among his people, there's this great expectation which is set up of God not just moving into a tent, but God moving into our world in a new and a spectacular way, even greater than what those people uh, ever experienced. Well, chapter 40 details the last preparations. All the individual items have been constructed, and now Moses has to put them all in their proper place. They set up the tent. They put the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. They put the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. They put up the shielding curtain that you might remember with the cherubim embroidered onto it. They set up the lampstand, the table, the altar of incense in the holy place. And then comes the altar for burnt offerings, the bronze altar, the, the basin for washing in the courtyard, the installation of the priests. They're washed, they're set apart, they're clothed in their special garments. They bring the first offerings. And finally, on the first day of the first month, after they'd come out of Egypt, it's all finished, it's all done. Finishing it on that day, on the first day of the first month of the year after they'd left Egypt, symbolizes this kind of new beginning. It's New Year's Day. It's the beginning of a new life, a new relationship with God. God had brought them out, and now God had brought them to himself. And God, having brought them to himself, his glory is spectacularly manifest among them as he comes and settles on this tabernacle. In verse 34 we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory comes and fills the tent so that Moses can't even go in there. Maybe it was like, uh, you know, trying to enter a, a burning house. You know, it's so hot that you can't even get in reach of it. There's no way that you can enter it. God's glory is so powerful, so extraordinary, so full, so dangerous that Moses can't even get close to this tent. But maybe the most important thing for us to realize here and to see here is that this work of God in coming down to his tent, coming down to his people, is the final piece in a long work of God a long work of God in which he has brought him people, his people to himself and he has come down to live among them. This is not a work of God, of the people working their way up to God, finding their way to God, but this is a work of God coming down in his grace and mercy to be among his people. God is the one who's rescued them. God is the one who's given them the details of the tabernacle of the tent to build. God is the one who's provided them with the materials to use for building. God is the one who's equipped them to build it. 
And God is the one who comes down in his glory to dwell in the tent. At no point in the history of the people of Israel in Exodus did the people make their way to God. It was always God in his kindness coming to them. Think about it. At the beginning of Exodus, they're enslaved in Egypt. They can't get out of Egypt. They need God to come and to do something extraordinary to set them free. They were trapped. In fact, the only contribution that Israel makes along this whole journey is to mess things up, to complain about God not providing for them, to build a golden calf when they're in a stone's throw of the mountain of the glory of God. But God in his mercy came down and made his home among them and showed them his glory. And it's fitting, I think, that we reach the end of Exodus as we approach Christmas to remember that time when God came and made his glory known among us, that time when God came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we remember the fact, not that we approached God, but that God came and approached us. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John describes Jesus living among us in a strange expression. He tabernacled or he tented among us. He lived in a tent. Jesus came and lived in a tent. In Jesus, God came and did, in human form, what the people saw in just a shadow in the tabernacle. Jesus came and stayed in people's homes and ate at people's tables and walked with them on the shore of the lake and slept in their boats and healed their children and raised their dead. But more than that, Jesus brought God to us. He came as an ordinary man, God made flesh, but he came to bring God to us and us to God. He came to show us his glory. We didn't climb our way up to God. God came down to us. We were trapped and he came and rescued us. And God still comes down to us through the person of the Holy Spirit whom he gives to all those who trust in Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, then God is with you. And God goes with you to your house and he goes with you to breakfast and lunch and dinner and he goes with you in your running or riding or out with friends or at home alone just spending time alone. God is there in all his glory. Despite all that's happened, despite all that we've messed up, God comes down to us in his mercy. He extends his hand to us. He invites us to come to himself. He invites us to receive him in Jesus and he makes his home among us through the Holy Spirit. So God comes down to the people the climax of this great work of Exodus. But not only does God come down to them, 
the Israelites, the people of God, go with God. God's glory comes and fills the tabernacle, but we're told in verse 36, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the glory of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Now that God's glory comes and takes up its home among the people, the glory of God becomes the driver for where the people go and when the people go. They don't set the agenda of where they're going to travel. God does that. When God's glory moves, they pack up the tabernacle and they go with God's glory. And when God's glory stays, they stay where they are. They don't go where they want and just expect God to trail along after them. They go with God and they stay with God. And after all the mayhem of Exodus, it finally seems as though the people of God have, 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 have realized what's going on. It seems as though they've finally learnt their lesson. In Egypt, some of them have wondered whether God had really sent Moses to deliver them. Then when they'd come out, some of them still looked back longingly to Egypt. Couldn't we go back there? Wasn't it better there? And even after God's glory had appeared on Mount Sinai, they thought, well, we've got better ideas. We'll build this golden calf and go with it. But now the glory of the, of, of the Lord comes and settles in their midst. It comes and settles among them and finally it seems they've learnt to go with God. So often I think we set off on our own adventures and we just expect God to come along for the ride. We decide where we'll go and when we'll go and we just kind of expect the cloud will follow us. We think of God maybe as no more than a little dog that runs along after us whenever we want to go, wherever we want to go. But that's not the way it works. It's not about God following us where we go, but about us following God where he goes. Someone was sharing with me last week uh, that a little while ago they were asked to help out with something. Uh, and immediately they said no. They, they couldn't do it, they didn't have the time to do it. And as time went on, they thought to themselves, they became increasingly convicted that that was the wrong answer. They realised that actually they'd said no without really praying about it, without actually really asking God what he wanted them to do. So they prayed and they thought, no, I think I should do that. I think I should say yes. And then a little while later, they were asked to do the same thing again. And thinking that they'd learned their lesson, they said immediately, yes, of course I can do that. And then as time went on, they became increasingly convinced and convicted that that wasn't actually the right thing to do. And they realised that again, they'd given an answer without stopping to think what God wanted them to do. It can be so familiar, can't it, that reality. We do it all the time. We never stop to ask. But it's worth stopping and asking, where am I going? And more than that, 
Where is God going? Where is God now? Where is he staying? And where is he going? You might discover that you've gone off and left behind the camp of God. Gone off and built your tent somewhere else, far away from where God is. Or you might discover that while you are busily refurbishing the interior of your tent, the rest of the camp of God had packed up and moved on. And you've been left behind. What decisions have you made lately? What decisions have you made and how have you gone about seeking God's plan and purpose in that? Where are you going? Where are you staying? Where is God? But not only do we need to stay and go with God, we need to understand why we would do that. Why did the people go with God? Why did they stay with God? And the answer is in verse 38. Verse 38 says, uh, So, or, or really for, why did they go with the pillar of cloud and fire? For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Or literally, the cloud and the fire were in their eyes through all the journey. There it was, blazing before their eyes all the time, the glory of God. They couldn't, they couldn't look away. There was nowhere that they would turn and it wouldn't be there, the glory of God. And it's a powerful lesson, I think, for us as well. What we need is to set the glory of God before our eyes. We need to fix our sight on that, on the wonder and the majesty and the greatness of God so that we would go when he goes and stay when he stays. You know, as we've worked through the book of Exodus, something has begun to trouble me quite deeply. And that is, I think, that there is, it seems to me, very little awe of God in our lives. If I think just about what we do on Sundays, it often seems that in our Christian lives... Our Christianity becomes largely horizontal. That is, our relationships to each other rather than our preoccupation with God and who he is. We come to church to meet with each other, to encourage each other, to learn and to be built up. Yes, of course we do that. Yes, it's part of what it is to be a follower of Christ. It's part of what it is to love God. But there's something far more that we need than each other. We need to have our eyes lifted up to behold the glory of God. That's what we need. Throughout the week, it's like our vision becomes slowly more and more blurred. It's like we're wearing glasses and as the days go on, they just become more and more dirty and our view of the world and of our circumstances and of our lives just becomes obscured. And we need to come together and we need to have our eyes opened and our glasses cleaned to be able to see the glory of God so that when we set out again on Monday, we're going in the right direction and we're staying in the right place. More and more I find myself just praying every day, Lord, we just need you. 
That's all we need. We don't need more people. We don't need more money. We don't need more time. We just need you. All the other stuff can go if we just have you. So the people in Exodus experienced the great grace of God. They didn't climb up to God, but he came down to them. And having seen that and received that, they knew that it was best to stay with God and to go with God and to fix their eyes on God's glory. But it's important, I think, for us to realize too that the appearance of God's glory above this tent in Exodus is just a shadow of something greater. These final verses in the book of Exodus are are the climax of this whole book. But they're not the climax of the Bible. They're just a stepping stone along the way to something better. God had rescued his people from slavery. He'd brought them to himself. His glory now appears over the tabernacle and he goes with his people. But it's not the end of the Bible story. God says to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.14, this is what the future holds. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's great plan isn't for his glory to be manifest over a tent. God's great plan is for his glory to fill the earth. So that you'd never be able to say to the person next to you, have you seen the glory of God? And they would say no. Everyone would see it. Everyone would know it. God's plan is to fill the earth with his glory so there's no corner, no crevice, no cave, no place, no person where God's glory is not known and where God's glory is not revered and where God's glory is not loved. We see that same picture in the very last pages of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. There John sees a vision which describes in pictures and illustrations the new reality that God will usher in when Jesus returns. John writes, I didn't see a temple in the city. I didn't see a tabernacle or a tent. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. John sees a world with no temple because God is there. He's everywhere. And the glory of God fills the earth. And the light of God's glory is a light that dispels all the darkness. At present, We think we live in a world of light, but we don't. We live in a world as in the darkness, as in the light of the moon. You know, when you go out at night, it's amazing what you can see, isn't it? On a full full moon, you can you can see incredible detail. You can you can behold an incredible world, a world to be loved and enjoyed. You can go for a walk. You can see birds and, and animals, even. In the middle of the night. But when the sun rises, you begin to realize how dim the world was in which you were living and the world that you were enjoying. 
One day, the day will come when Jesus returns and the sun will rise on the earth and God's glory will light up the world and we'll begin to realise how dim this world has been. A glorious world, wonderful world, a world of great gifts from God, but a dim world, a world of shadows compared to that world to come. No more will God's glory be hidden behind a curtain or tucked away in a tent. No more will it be obscured from our sight. We'll see the glory of God face to face. For those who don't know Jesus, that day will be a terrible day. It will be like Moses. The glory of God is too close. It will be worse than their worst nightmares. The God that they have rejected, the God that they have abhorred, the God that they have ridiculed, standing before them in all his glory. But for those sinners who found God's grace in Jesus Christ, for those sinners who found forgiveness in cleansing through the blood of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, that day will be a day of celebration. The culmination of everything we've ever done and everything that we've ever hoped for. It will be the day when God gets the keys to the house and God moves in and he'll never move out again. That's what we pray for when we pray the first words of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We pray for God's name, his glory to be manifest in the world. So often our prayers are so small scale. We pray for our health, we pray for our issues in life, we pray for our daily bread, and we should. But we need to start somewhere else. We need to lift our eyes up to see God's bigger picture. We need to lift our eyes to see that we need so much more than just bread to eat. We need and our world needs to behold the glory of God. Imagine if we committed to praying for that for the next year to be a community of people who pray for one thing above everything else, to behold God's glory in our own eyes and in the eyes of this community and this place. What would God do, I wonder? It's a prayer that we know God loves to answer. For my own name's sake, says God. We don't make our way to God. God has made his way to us in Jesus Christ. And oh, how we need that. Oh, how we need the glory of God to come among us and to come among God's world. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that when we've done so much to push you away, to live in rebellion against you, that you've 
come and made yourself known to us, that you've forgiven us, cleansed us, washed us, set your Holy Spirit within us, made us temples of the living God. And thank you that one day you will come again to make your home among us and we will see your glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Lord, we pray that you would make your glory known to us more and more every day. We pray that your name would be hallowed, revered, honoured, that your kingdom would come and that we would see it, that the world would see it, that people would bow the knee and honour and worship you. Lord, we ask it not for our own name's sake, but for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, finish now with a song.